you, worship team. All right. If you'll turn your Bibles to John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. First 12 verses in John chapter 2. You all should know this story pretty well if you grew up reading the Bible at all. If you've never read it, it's a really interesting story. Before we begin, I just want to say, sometimes when you read the Bible, you have to try to um, try to remove all of your, your biases and your um, kind of your... You're, you, everyone sees the Bible through their own lens, but sometimes you have to approach the text and just come to it as it is and just read it as it is. And the reason I say that is, it's this for some reason this passage comes up a lot with conservative Christians and, and wine. It seems almost con- inconceivable to many that Jesus would have drank wine. Um, well, not only did he drink wine, I think he made a lot of wine. Um, and um, we're going to look past... We're going to talk more about this in the passage this morning, but I think I want us to try to remove our conservative Christian um, lens for just a second and just read this text as it is. Um, and, and we're going to try to um, address some of the the questions that people have, like you know, why why would Jesus be at a party with wine, or why would Jesus be encouraging people to drink wine? Um, those are those aren't bad questions to ask. Um, but if we approach the text as John would want us to read it, I think that it becomes clear that not only did Jesus perform this miracle, but he performed it for a very specific reason. Um, and so this morning we're going to look at Jesus' first sign. His very first miracle, so to speak, is turning water into wine. It's first public display of his glory. Um, and so uh, this, this week I've had Chris Tomlin in my, in my head all week. That is Chris Tomlin, I think. All right. Um, I always get Chris Tomlin and Crowder confused. I don't know why. Um, This was Jesus' first sign of his messianic identity. Uh, We saw last week that he did display his omniscience and his power to Nathaniel, who's actually from Cana. But when John tells us in chapter 2 that this was Jesus' quote-unquote first sign, he's talking about in a public sense. Um, but before people, a group of people. But actually, in this particular instance, it's not in front of a lot of people. And we'll see that later in the text. In fact, it's kind of discreet. Jesus is at a wedding, but he's not trying to take away from the, the festivities at all. So it's not like Jesus is like, hey guys, just made water into wine. Um, he actually is pretty humble about it. But this is, according to John, his first public sign, display of his glory. And so, uh, if you'll stand for the reading of God's Word, just 12 verses, and a very profound passage. And the Holy Spirit says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with His disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to Him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. (laughs) I laughed at that too. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. 
Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Father, you show us in your word that a display of your glory renders us in faith. Um, Father, we we pray that this morning you would open our eyes to see your glory and to believe in your Son, Jesus, who reflected that glory perfectly. Show us the meaning of this passage, that that the Holy Spirit that authored this text, that the very same Spirit now penetrate our hearts and open our eyes so that we can receive that which you have apportioned for your church. And all these things we ask in your son's name. Amen. Do you remember back in chapter 1 when John says, we have seen his glory? Okay, This is part of what he's talking about here. Jesus performs his first miracle by turning water into wine. Fermented, alcoholic, real wine. We're not going to get into that today. Uh, I've heard a lot of people, there may be some of you all that believe it was unfermented and was non-alcoholic, like first century O'Douls or something. It, it wasn't. Um, it was, there is nothing in the text to suggest that it was anything other than traditional wine. Jesus is at a wedding in Cana, which is not far from Nazareth. In fact, we're going to see Cana again in John chapter 4 when Jesus heals the official's son. This is actually what we're going to read here. It just happens two days after um, when he had his encounter with Nathaniel. Because of its proximity to Nazareth, and because Jesus' mom and friends and disciples are there, most scholars have concluded this was probably a close relative or friend who was getting married. Okay, keep this in mind. He has not started really gathering huge swaths of people around him yet. So this isn't like a celebrity invite. This is probably someone he knows. His mother is there, of course, as well. And so verses 1 through 3 say this, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. So it's important to understand that in this culture, that's kind of like a major faux pas in first century Israel. You don't have a big wedding or a festivity and run out of wine. Um, Kind of a major faux pas in a lot of places here. Uh, But especially in this culture, wine is a staple in a lot of Jewish festivities. In the Bible, it's a symbol of joy. It's a symbol of celebration. The master of the feast is probably very embarrassed and he's panicking, I'm sure. When Kelly and I got married, um, I won't say which one, but one of our families was cool with alcohol, the other was not. Um, it was kind of a mess. Um, all's well that ends well. But um, we had one side that insisted on bringing its own 
alcohol into the conference center. Uh, the people at the conference center called the cops. It was a mess. Um, sadly, and I use that instance because sadly when Americans read about Jesus being at a wedding with wine and people wanting more wine and Jesus supplying them with more wine, there's a sense of which we can't detach ourselves from our own preconceived notions about alcohol and alcoholism and drunkenness. We're just, we live in 21st century America. When we read this passage this morning, we have to try to push past that because even though drunkenness certainly existed at this time, I mean, Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine. Wine was not taboo like it, is, like it is today in many conservative Christian circles. And this is the same for many cultures in the world today. I mean, I've been overseas before and people have offered me wine and you better believe I drank it. It was a part of the culture. To deny it would have been extremely rude. Wine is a symbol of joy and celebration. The problem is they're out of wine, which is not good. Verses 4 through 5, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I, I, most scholars would, I, we hear that and we're like, why is he calling his mom woman? It just sounds sassy when you read it. Um, I, I, I read, I, that concerned me a little bit, so I, I read a little bit. And uh, that is not an uncommon greeting, uh, but in, in this instance, gune, the, the Greek would have just insist, it, it would have put an emphasis on the fact that uh, he's, he's, he's treating her less in a familial sense and more in, in just a conversational sense. So he wasn't being rude to Mary, uh, but he is emphasizing the fact that he, he, it would have been emphatic, I guess is what you would say. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants anyway, do whatever he tells you. Um, verse 5 made me laugh a little bit because you can just imagine uh, everybody freaking out because there's no wine and Mary kind of the doting, proud mom uh, just kind of being like, hey, Jesus, do that superpower thing and get these kids some wine here. Um, I don't know if that's the way it is. It sounds like that. Um, and then Jesus is like, why are you involving me in this? Let's not get hung up on the woman part. Obviously, Jesus was very, I mean, he honored his parents. I mean, scriptures bear out that he walked um, blamelessly before men. Um, but I think what, what we see here is Jesus was not, in some sense, prepared to really be involved in performing a miracle. Um, his response is interesting, though. My hour has not yet come. My hour. The hour Jesus is referring to, of course, is the hour of His crucifixion, when He glorifies the Father by offering Himself as the Lamb of God. John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus says this, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So what's amazing here is that Jesus, even at a wedding, even then, even at a wedding in Cana amongst friends and his own family, Jesus was still preparing himself to be crucified. He knew the very purpose for, he came, for which he came. It was always on his mind. So even in celebration, He's carrying with Himself the very purpose for which He was born, which is to die. He's cognizant of that even when celebrating at a wedding. Which is just, I mean, the immense burden that would have been on His shoulders His entire life. Jesus, the Son of God, glorified the Father most in that hour as a dying lamb for the, as the substitute for sinners, presenting them as an unblemished 
kingdom of priests, that was the reason he was sent. And it is such a significant hour, such a weighty moment, that he calls it my hour. Which kind of gets you into the mind of Jesus that his entire life is focused on that one act of dying, even at a wedding. I think the other reason I like this passage is that you can kind of catch a glimpse. Jesus is the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and Alpha Omega, and He still obeyed His mama. I like that. He's human. He honors thy father and mother. Mary calls over the wedding staff, says, do whatever He tells you. And if Jesus could have been like, you know, hey, um, Mom, I came here to die for the sins of mankind. I'm not going to change water into wine. Um, he could have said something like, Mom, I'm God, you're not, don't, you're not the boss of me. Um, he could have said something like, Mom, not in front of my disciples. Okay? Um, but what he did was, he didn't fold his arms, he obeyed Mom. Which I think is interesting. I mean, let's not, let's not kind of discount that. He was obedient to the Father even unto death. And let's not forget, Jesus honored thy father and mother. Even with, his, even with his homies around. I mean, he had a small... He didn't have all his disciples yet, but he had a small little cash band of people who were following him around, and he's still obeying his mom, uh, which is, is really impressive. He turned water into wine with a snap of his fingers. He had them fill six stone jars, really vats, with water. He did something only he could do, and he not only turned water into wine, apparently it was really good wine. I hope I don't, you know... Hope I don't lose my, my job as a Southern Baptist pastor when I say this, but if Jesus turned water into wine right in front of me, you better believe I'd be trying the wine. It's Jesus' wine. This is Jesus' juice. I mean, if He was making it, it'd be better than anything you could come up with on earth. If it came from Jesus, I'd be drinking it too. Verses 9 and 10, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants had, who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then, the, then they pour the wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So Jesus kept the party going. Just kind of neat. This passage is so important, not for what it, just about what it demonstrates about the power and omnipotence of Jesus, but it also reveals Jesus' heart. Think about it. He filled six massive jars of water to the brim so that he could keep the party going. That's so unlike the way we think of Jesus today. I mean, I think a lot of people will be like, hey, Jesus, can you make some more wine? No, I think they've had enough. They've had way too much alcohol. I can make some lemonade, though, or some sweet tea, but I ain't giving you more alcohol. No, he made more wine. I think a lot of people have a view that Jesus was like the fun police. He didn't want anybody getting too happy. No, Jesus said... Come over here, I'll make some wine. Which is kind of neat. But that's not all we see here. What's very important is that Jesus takes joy in their joy. Jesus wants us to have a good time with Him. I mean, that's, just, that's important for the way, for me personally. I'll just be honest with you. I just, for some reason, growing up, I thought heaven was everybody got out of Him and we were in church forever. Which we will be except I just had a very diminished, corrupt, sinful view of church. But here, it tells me that Jesus wants us to have a great time with believers and Him forever. Jesus' heart is to celebrate. Now the problem is, when we think of partying today, we think of red solo cups and beer pong. 
is what we think about. But that's nothing close to the kind of party that Jesus has in store for those who believe in Him. Our parties and our feasts are but a sinful shadow of the excitement and the joy and the celebration that Jesus desires for His people. Even the way that Jesus explains the Lord's Supper to His disciples, He does it in terms of a feast and drinking wine. Matthew 28, 20, 20, Matthew chapter 26, verses 28 through 29. I'm sure Ben Malloy has this memorized. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now don't, don't, don't miss this. I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What a day that'll be. I mean, what a comfort we have knowing that Jesus desires in the end of days that He'll be partying with His people. Now, the problem isn't that parties are sinful. I use that word and I think a lot of y'all might be, I don't think Jesus parties. I mean, Jesus might like, have a good time, but you know, when we use the word party, we, we think of maybe you know debauchery or we think of something lower than righteous. But the problem isn't that parties are sinful, the problem is that sin has corrupted and diminished our ideas of what a party really is. John 2 is but a foretaste of the celebration that will take place at a wedding between Christ and his church. At the very end of eternity, eternity will be consummated with a wedding, and you better believe people will be having fun. But don't miss verse 9. Jesus doesn't tell the master of the feast who ordered the wine. He wasn't interested in His own glory. He was only interested in the glory of the Father. Jesus' glory is the best kind. It's humble, heavenly glory. Jesus didn't put like six vats of wine, take a picture on Facebook and be like, Hey, I just turned water into wine. People, people today put on Facebook a lot of times, they're like... Um, I love my life. Hashtag God's good. You know, Jesus didn't call attention. Have you ever, you know, are y'all familiar with the term humble brag? Your Ken Wynn has got this face like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Jesus didn't call attention to himself after he turned six vats of water into wine. How humble you have to be. He's manifesting the very glory of God and he made it, he chained it into wine and he sat back and said, let the party go on. I just I think we get caught up a lot in the power of God, and we should. But look at the humility of Jesus here. Even though we can't turn water into wine, we're asked to do great things in His name and to let others see how great He is. I was actually convicted about this week because I'm going, I'm supposed to, you know, we, we just came out with a website, we came out with Facebook, uh, a page, <coughs> I have, to, I have to balance, and we have to balance that line between letting people know that God is at work, but not feeling like we have to publish every good deed this church does. You know what I'm talking about? I was just convicted about this week. Matthew 5.16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And I, I really... God convicted me of this. Letting our light shine doesn't mean publishing our good works to the world. Letting our light shine means being humble and letting God publish our good works to the world. Does that make sense? 
Which is precisely what happens here with Jesus and His disciples. The master of the feast says, I don't know who did it, but the servants know. As I was reading this passage, I was thinking to myself, what's the takeaway for us today? What, I mean, it's cool, it's awesome, it shows the power and deity of Christ, but what's the takeaway for me as a Christian today reading that Jesus turned water into wine? This isn't always a hard and fast rule, but generally, if you want to know the central lesson of a passage in the Gospels, you go to the very end. And this is, and it's found in verse 11. This, the first of His signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. That Greek word for manifest is phanero. It also means to reveal. So basically, Jesus is revealing His glory by turning water into wine. And his disciples believed in him. I was also thinking here, it doesn't say they they had faith. It says they believed in him. I think I heard a lot of people this week. Um, we, Kelly and I went to a Relay for Life uh, dinner last night. Um, for some reason, I was, I was listening to a lot of testimonies this week. And I heard a lot of people say things like, um, I just had to hold on to my faith. Or I had to lean on my faith. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I think, I think I knew what they meant. But I also was convicted this week that Christians don't actually hold on to our faith. We hold on to Jesus and then we call that faith. Does that make sense? I don't lean on my faith. I lean on Jesus and I call that faith. I do not believe in my faith. I believe in Jesus. Does that make sense? And the reason that's important, some of y'all may be like, oh, I mean, that's kind of a, yeah, it's a small distinction there. No, I think it's huge because we, we, we keep, if we keep going long and longer and longer talking about faith, but we don't ever actually talk about what the object of our faith is, faith becomes the object of our faith. We start measuring our relationship with God by how much faith we can conjure, when in fact it's not the power of our faith, it's the power of the one who our faith is in. Does that make sense? Because at the very end of this thing, it doesn't say, and they had faith. It says they believed in Him. Their faith is in the one who just turned water into wine. They didn't try to conjure up more faith. They simply believed and said, this guy's worth following. And that's what he asked for us this morning. Now, I don't want to get caught up too much. Don't, don't, like, don't be the, like, the theological police and some, next time somebody says, you know. Because even Paul said he kept the faith. But let's make sure that we don't just go through the motions and talk about our faith. When you talk about your faith, talk about Jesus. You don't lean on your faith. You lean on Christ. To behold the glory of God is such an amazing, indescribable thing that John actually starts out his gospel with, we beheld His glory. It's kind of like saying, we actually got to see this stuff and now I'm going to tell you about it. It was so amazing. And the only word we can describe it with that Jesus had, was glory. The same God who parted the Red Sea, spoke from the burning bush, toppled city walls, is now turning water into wine. And these men are now following Him with their lives. So what's the takeaway? Glory is the takeaway. Worship is the takeaway. John says, faith is the takeaway. The disciples believed in Him. You are to read this passage and do exactly what the disciples did. Bow and worship and believe in Christ. Jesus turned H2O into fermented grape juice. Worship Him. Billy Graham died this week at the age of 99. 
Um, you know, I'm sure you've read the last week. There's just been stuff out on him. Um, great is his reward. I think is probably the least we could say. Um, in 2007, George H.W. Bush called him America's pastor. I think that was very appropriate. Um, there's a book by a guy named Grant Wacker. Um, it's a phenomenal biography on Graham. I encourage you to read it if you ever want a, a good beach vacation read. Uh, it's called America's Pastor. I think it's the best biography on Graham. I've heard a lot this week about what it was. I've seen a lot of memes, too, about... Uh, have you, did anybody else see things on social media about like pictures of Billy Graham walking into heaven? Did you ever see those? Those were going around everywhere. Um, and I've heard a lot of people talking this week about... Billy's finally there. Oh, they're giving him a party, you know. I'm sure they did. No doubt the saints and angels are partying hard in heaven right now with Billy Graham. But the glory that we receive in heaven isn't like the glory we receive here on earth. And what I mean by that is there are no celebrities in heaven the way that we think of them now. There are no crusade stages in heaven. There are no personal accolades in the way that we recognize them here. Now, we will be glorified in heaven. But the glory we receive in heaven, the light that consumes us and wraps around us that we're clothed in, it comes from Jesus and it all goes back to Jesus. We are engulfed in His glory and we return that glory in worship. No one receives worship in heaven but Jesus. And that is precisely why when Billy Graham was welcomed into heaven, he didn't ascend the stage, he bowed before a throne. That was his desire on earth. Billy Graham desired God's glory more than the glory of Billy Graham. The glimpse of glory that Jesus revealed at Cana that small glimpse is now being perfectly revealed to Billy Graham in heaven. And if turning water into wine was enough to bring these men to faith, you better believe that His fully revealed glory in heaven is enough to enrapture us forever. We have to want God's glory, God's honor, God's name more than ourselves. Which is why, if you have faith in Jesus, heaven will welcome you the same way it did Billy Graham. I used to think sometimes, and I still think this sometimes, I used to think, if I'm this sinful now, we were actually having a conversation in a small group on Wednesday night about this, the more I grow in Christ, the more I increase in my faith, the more I grow in my sanctification, the more I learn to love more, the more I realize how sinful I am. And I just, I have this, you call it a moment of doubt sometimes, where I go, man, if I'm this sinful on earth, how will I ever be able to worship Jesus perfectly in heaven? I just think that sometimes. And what I, I thought of reading this passage was, if Jesus could fill giant water, giant vats of water and turn them into wine, you better believe He can fill empty, idolatrous hearts with the perfect love of Jesus. 
And if you're in Christ today, He is doing that even now. That's the point of the Christian life. Growing in love. The proper response to God's glory is precisely what we see here the disciples. It's faith. They believed in Him. That's the climax of the entire story is them putting their faith in the man who just turned water into wine. I think that is more of the climax than actually turning the water into wine because putting dead hearts and giving them faith, making people who are idolaters and rebels by nature and making them into followers of Jesus is just as much a miracle as turning water into wine. Faith in Jesus means believing in His glory and repentance means turning away from our own. In order to follow Jesus in this life, you have to want His glory, His name, His honor more than yourselves. Proper response to God's glory is faith. Will we believe like these disciples? Because God has revealed His glory in Jesus. He did it in John 2 and He does it today. If you have never placed your faith in Jesus, the altar is open. Let's pray. Father God, What a mighty, powerful, strong, omnipotent, vast God You are. And we catch a glimpse of that in this passage. Just like those giant vats, we are empty. We have to have You supply us with love. We need You to supply us with Your goodness. We have none on our own. We need Your grace and Father turning our hearts and making them new and drawing us unto Yourself. That is a work of only God can do. You are the God who turns water into wine, who turns criminals into friends. Father, show us your glory that we may believe in Jesus. And all these things we ask in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Robbie. I'm going to invite you to stand and sing with us. I'm great. I'm great.